Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach. I run Strength Guild, as well as USSF. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and uh, all-around nice guy. And this is uh, John Mike, Dr. John Mike. I'm a system prof, strength coach, writer, author, speaker, strongman competitor, and... Um, I'm telling you, um, it's getting cold outside here. It was 66 degrees yeah. two days ago. And, of course, you know when it gets warm or cold outside, I'm always down with those blackberry or blueberry pancakes. <laughs> I got no problem with that. I love that stuff. Uh, we have tons of news here. Before I get into a lot of the uh, like food industry news and some of the mail, uh, Phil, I know you said you were working with some people. You got some news just from your facility. Yeah, this was my first week of... Uh, we got the whole Special Olympics team in the area. Started at my gym this week. <clears throat> so that was interesting. You know, they're coming two times a week for an hour, an hour and a half at a time. So getting them all ready for the, jeez, uh, a local meet, then the regionals, then the state meet. So How are you a- adapting the coaching, you know, or the movements or whatever? Is, just, is it case-by-case case kind of thing? Well, that is an on-working thing. So <laughs> uh-huh. I'm dealing with the people that were with it before. And, uh, you know, what I'm moving towards is talking them into, okay, we've got X number of kids. We have us four people that are qualified to actually help coach. We need to split them up into equal groups and just those are your four kids. Those are your four kids, whatever. Right. Yep. Um, because what I've seen is just that the biggest thing with people with special needs is consistency. Um, you, you can't change anything. You know, if you do, it has to be very small. You know, they need to do this. Okay, we need to set this in plan right from the start. Like, even like bench press with um, one of my clients, Miles. I mean, I learned real quick that, oop, I guess we should have been doing the the, the, the calls of the bench, you know, the pause, the bench, the press, the rack um, from the start. Because changing that later was, it was hard. Oh. Because <laughs> he's like, no, we don't that way. We come down, we press up. You know? Right. Yeah. That's what we've done. So, I mean, you set everything in motion early, more early than you do with, you know, an, an average person. So, but it's just consistency, and if you're going to make a change, make a very small change. And other than that, man, it's not that different. Um, you know, they're eager to learn. They're a lot of fun. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's all high fives and cheering, right? You know, on, more yeah. so than than with uh, the average person. Well, I think but that's awesome that you're time. doing that. Yeah, Absolutely. So. You know, that actually the way you're doing that reminds me. When I was in grad school, we had some adapted physical education programs. You know, we had special needs people come in, uh-huh. and it was a similar thing. I think we each took a, a two or three. You know, uh, they were kids, but breaking it down like that, I think is wise, you know, lots of, uh, supervision and individual attention, stuff like that. And then what else? I got a new girl this week. She's come two days now and she has fibrodysplasia. I don't know if you know what that is. Um, it's basically any damage you have to soft tissue, uh, cartilage, ligaments, bone or cartilage, ligament, muscle. If it's damaged, it turns to bone. Oh my goodness um, gracious! Yeah, so it's I'm I'm helping her learn how to walk again, and the trick with that is, great, we can train. We need to make you stronger because your one leg has gotten a lot weaker. But I have to do very little because if I do enough to cause muscle damage, then it turns into bone. So, <laughs> so you have to avoid like eccentric lifts, right? I mean, yeah, I have to avoid and lots of you know keep the volume really low and oh wow, um, wow, just slowly ease up. But uh, she was going to another place and it, it was she was just leaving in pain. And uh, so she didn't want to go. She's only eight. Um, mm. But uh, we've had a couple sessions, and she's, like, begging to come back every night. So um, it's a good time. She's a, she's a fun little girl, and it'll be fun to see what we can figure out. So Success is really enriching, you know, when you work yeah. with someone like that because it's such a challenge just for them to uh, break new ground of any kind sometimes, oh. you know. So, yeah. no, good stuff. Okay. Um, I received everyone um, – 
this only comes about once a month or so. This is the Institute of Food Technologists. They have uh, a newsletter. If you're interested, it's uh, www.ift.org. And they have a wellness newsletter. So it's not just about food you know, quality assurance and food chemistry and stuff. But there's a little bit of that in here. But let me – I'm going to go down this list. So sort of shotgun approach to the news here. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Uh, and then, obviously, if you guys have anything interesting, you could chime in or I'll, I'll ask you guys. But And then we'll get to some listener uh, mail. This first one, uh, this is January of this year. I mean, this is right right now, spanking new. New dietary guidelines for Americans focus on reducing added sugars. Uh, there are some things in the new dietary guidelines that I think lifters have been, for years, have been saying, duh, you know. Um, but I understand you know, evidence and the bureaucracy is a slower process. But it says the U.S. Uh, Health and Human Services and Department of Agriculture have announced the 2015 through 2020 dietary guidelines for Americans. And they're focusing on topics like added sugar, sodium, and cholesterol. Uh, also, actually, caffeine for the first time has appeared in these, which is weird because it's not a nutrient, right? If anything, it's a drug. I mean, it's in the food supply. but So added sugars, they're saying you should really consume no more than 10% of all of your calories each day from sugars that are added. And I think they, they went with that added term because, you know, like if you eat an apple, that's going to be pretty sugary, but it's hard to demonize that like you would a Mountain Dew, you know. Um it says Americans currently consume 13 to 17% of their calories from added sugar. So like 50% to 100% more than the recommendation. Uh, the sodium thing, uh, this is interesting, but it says according to the Institute of Medicine, there is no evidence to support treating population subgroups differently. Uh, the recommendation for sodium is really low. I mean, it's so much lower than almost anybody could handle. It's uh, it's yeah. 2,300 milligrams per day. And I don't know if listeners have ever tried a low-sodium diet or a low-sodium product. Like uh, if you go for sodium-free, for example, or very low-sodium tomato sauces and stuff like that, it's not even the same product. You know, no. It's almost impossible to comply with super low-sodium diets, I'm telling you. It's uh, even way – I mean, that's, to me, that's <laughs> that's just – so much more difficult than even trying to maintain a lower carb diet. Yeah, lo- yeah, it is. I agree with that. It's harder than low carb and low fat. Yep. Uh, the cholesterol recommendations have finally been pulled. I think a lot of people know that now. But uh, right now, the dietary guidelines make no recommendations to limit cholesterol. Uh, and in the past, of course, we were told to eat less than 300 milligrams of cholesterol in the diet every day. Um, but there were some Canadian health authorities. They never really, you know went so panicky about cholesterol in the diet because the amount of cholesterol in your diet has very little impact on your blood cholesterol. So what are we doing? You know, uh, especially if you look across a lot of meats, they have roughly similar amounts of cholesterol. I mean, cholesterol is coming from animal products. Uh, but to me for lifters, if you're fretting about sodium and cholesterol, I, I don't even know if you can make gains, you know, uh, it'd be very tough because you'd be avoiding so many things that we normally eat. You know, I mean, if you're hypertensive or, you know, you're high risk for something, I mean, not everybody even gets their blood pressure benefited from sodium reduction. You know, uh, sodium sensitivity is only about 50 percent, 30 to 50 percent or so of hypertensive uh, people. And then the cholesterol thing just doesn't seem to matter at all. So. I don't know. I'm not saying go eat lots of sodium, you know, but the truth is stuff like sodium and cholesterol. I don't think at least young lifters can really fret about that too much. You know, I mean, if we're trying to eat whole natural foods, it's probably less less of an issue anyway, although that natural issue is loaded. I'll get to that in a minute. And then finally, uh, caffeine. So it says um, for the first time uh, they're making some suggestions about caffeine, keeping it to three to five cups of coffee a day. I think there's so much news about coffee being beneficial that it's really hard not to at least let people consume, you know, three, four, 500 milligrams a day like that. Um, although they did say, quote, people who do not currently consume caffeine in, in various forms are not encouraged to begin. So, so that's the new dietary guidelines. The one thing that I found in here that was a, a little bit irritating, and Phil, you said a lot of your diet was sat fat, but they're still pointing a nasty finger at saturated fats. Um, and that was, like, that was like last year that came out in the – I mean, numerous articles said, you know, saturated fat is not, you know, demonized, shouldn't be demonized, you know, like it has been for you know, 20, 40, you know, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Um, well, 
maybe it will go the way of the cholesterol recommendations. Who knows? You know, where yeah, they finally back down uh, a little bit. Um, and, you know, to me, that's an individual thing. But And then uh, it, this is interesting. They say consume a variety of protein foods. Now, this is almost a 180 from a lot of the stuff I heard in the 90 out of dietetics groups, you know, about how, you know, protein rots your kidneys and, you know, this, all the stuff that I talk about in the ad at the middle of the show, you know, protein's been sort of demonized a bit, but um, they're saying go for it. But, you know, they just say variety, you know, eggs, legumes, nuts, seeds. I'm surprised they specifically mentioned soy products because I, I would think soy's really fallen out of favor in a lot of ways. But Yeah, I think so too. Um yeah. Because I mean, look at the almond milks and all the alternative pea protein. It looks like people are backing away. The soy is just – I don't think it's an ideal kind of food. But And then they talk about seek oils from plants, but then they run down a big list. And some of these I would not have on my list. Uh, some of these I would, like olive, peanut, you know, avocado. These are all good sources of fat. But then they include corn, safflower, soybean oil, sunflower oil. I don't think I'd be eating a lot of that stuff. But anyway, so that's the new dietary guidelines. Um, again, we're going to shotgun this. Uh, the next one on this press release, egg supply is rebounding. I don't know if anybody knows eggs. Uh, the avian influenza wiped out a, a ton of birds, and so egg prices went up around the country. Uh, the good news is, according to the Egg Industry Center in Ames, Iowa, half of the layer hens lost in 2015 are already replaced, and we're very quick, to, quickly moving back to pre-outbreak levels. So uh, I guess that's a good thing about poultry versus beef. You know, that yeah. they're uh, easily replaced, I suppose. Uh, so good stuff with that. Maybe you'll see the egg prices coming down a little bit. What- yeah, the price of food has kind of gone up a little bit, especially like the, the meats, the meat prices. Um, that, that's kind of gone up just over the course of like you know, the last year or two. And But um, I don't know. It's just – yeah, yeah. The food the- is just – food is expensive, people like us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Beef, we've said it before, but I think that's an inexorable rise. You're just going to see um, beef prices just go up slowly over the coming years until they become. It becomes almost a, you know, less of a staple and more of a luxury item. Uh, I hate to say that; it's like acid in my mouth to say that. But yeah. um, next one, new use for passion fruit seeds is discovered. So watch for a bunch of supplements to come out with this. Um, apparently, passion fruit seeds. They have more antioxidant power than a lot of other seed oils. Uh, they have high amounts of linolenic acid. So if listeners aren't familiar, that's the plant omega-3. Um, 70% more than most oils. Carotenoids, uh, phenols, uh, vitamin E. So they're apparently very nutrient-rich and a lot of antioxidant kinds of things. Uh, sounds good. So something about passion fruit entering the, you know, it's on the interest, it's on the radar list for the, the food and supplement industry. So all these different things crop out. It seems like almost any natural, well, again with that word natural, but almost any uh, new food ingredient like that, it's going to have some benefit. But Mm -hmm. um, Next up, CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. Excess sodium intake remains common in the U.S. And we were just talking about this, but apparently the CDC did a big survey between 2009 and 2012, 15,000 people, and get this, among adults, this echoes what we were just saying, how hard it is to be on a lower sodium diet. 98% of men and 80% of women consume too much sodium. So the guys are doing worse than the gals. But, um, but you know, it's funny you talk about, you know, during athletic endeavors and people that compete in, in sports of, of all kinds, you really need a, I mean, it's almost like beneficial to have like a higher sodium, you know, just for like, you know, uh, you know, Mm-hmm. Electrolyte replenishment, and of course, you know the relation of fluid balance, you know, with aldosterone, and um, you know, and, uh, ADH or anaerobic hormone increases, and in, like maintain plasma volume, and you know, the, the cardiorespiratory, you know, regulation with those types of things. I mean, like no one ever that the the well, I'm not gonna say nobody, but the the the, the discussion of you know sodium consumption in, in athletics is almost non-existent compared to the to the overall like general population yeah i hopefully really two different things yeah i hope hope we're eating less uh, you know processed kinds of foods anyway one of their strategies would be helpful though i mean it's true we have a unique population that could actually use that sodium but uh it says a key strategy for lowering population-wide sodium intake is to actually reduce it in the food supply so 
as athletes or you know people who do sweat enough that they might need some sodium replacement, avoid hyponatremia and all that kind of stuff, uh, then you can actually salt things if you needed it, but it's not mm-hmm. snuck into every freaking product. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't put I don't put a lot of I don't put added salt um, on pretty much anything that I eat, and it's not it's not that I do it like conscious. It's just mainly because there's already sodium like in the food. I mean. Eat soups, um, you know, unless I'm like maybe really sick or something like that. But if you look mm-hmm. at this, like cans of soup, I mean, God, they got like freaking like 500 grams of sodium in it. I mean, really? Oh yeah, you know? there are some <laughs> things like soups that are yeah, you'll get you'll double your daily intake requirements in a cup. You know, it's just yeah. crazy. Uh, I want to hear Phil's feedback on this one. U.S. consumers choosing healthier lifestyles rather than dieting. The NDP Group, a global information company. Uh, has put out this report. It says, apparently, dieting among U.S. consumers has been declining over the last decade, uh, according to NDP's diet research. In recent years, about 22% of consumers say they are currently on a diet, and 32% say they were never on a diet, uh, and the remaining consumers have tried dieting for varying lengths of time. It says, consumers who are who are on a diet prefer their own diet, so they sort of customize uh, rather than, you know, the initial plan, and get creative in defining which aspects of the diet work for them and their schedules. It says over the past five years, the percent of adults looking for calories on food nutrition labels has steadily declined. Now, I find that funny because the new food labels really emphasize calories. The the font mm-hmm. for calories is huge, and this is people aren't even looking at that. It says they're less concerned about calories than they are about other items like sugar, fat, and sodium. The uh, lack of interest in traditional calorie-counting diets doesn't mean people aren't still interested in losing weight, however. What do you think, Phil? Do you think people are moving away from calorie-counting diets? or? Uh... Yeah, I mean, you're seeing a lot more exclusion diets. At least we have been. So, oh, screw calories. I'm just going to not eat any of this. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it just makes it easier, I guess. It makes it easier to make something evil. And, yeah, we uh, put we put things in, instead of calories. We put them in like different food categories, yep. category, category diets. Yeah, yeah. And there's been a, a huge, uh, you know, focus on macros versus calories. You know, calories don't mean shit. It's just your macros. But when you break it down, well, your macros are made up of calories. Right. You, know, you add macros together, and they equal calories. You know, so they, I don't know, they in ways they're still looking at it and about, you know, and that. Uh, tried to explain to people it's like okay so you're eating 250 grams of this 250 grams of that 100 grams of that well you're still counting calories you're just not you just don't know it actually count it you just don't even know it yeah yeah, yeah. so um yeah i think it's it's kind of funny that people are sick of you know restrictive calorie counting diets i mean and yeah. in a sense i think it's a step in the right direction yeah you know but it's definitely yeah the step towards the more of what you eat not how much yeah you know, which is a good thing well i think <laughs> My my irritation with a lot of the calorie stuff is that uh, exercise becomes anti-eating to a lot of people. Yeah. You know, yes. like I, I ate that bagel, so I have to exercise for this many minutes uh-huh. to erase it. And exercise is about adaptations. It's about creating a, a new structures. That's obvious to lifters because you can see the new structures, you know. But yeah. to the average person who doesn't exercise hard enough or long enough to physically, morphologically change, visibly change, I don't think they realize. They just look at it like it's a calorie drain, you know, and they it, do. It, it's a, yeah. very irritating. Yeah. Okay, because um, I think it devalues it. Let's see what else yeah. we have here. Uh, some of this stuff isn't even worth some of these new products. Here's a creatine product. It's a calorie-free creatine product launch. Good luck with that. <laughs> you're you're in a big. Uh, here's here's an one. Um, Blast Energy releases caffeinated chewing gum. So we were just talking about this. Uh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, have you? Because they had some on the market, and I thought the FDA shut that down. Although you can find that military caffeine gum on Amazon that uh, Mike Nelson and I were talking about. But it says Blast Power Gum, a caffeinated chewing gum, is um, coming to the United States. Each each piece of gum has 80 migs of caffeine, about a cup of coffee. Zero calories. It's flavored with xylitol. So I'm not a big fan of sugar alcohols, but if it's just in your chewing gum, it's not going to – I don't think it would be enough to give you gastric distress or anything, obviously. There's a couple of things in here about some new gluten-free English muffins coming out. And, again, we were talking about that. I think that trend is actually starting to ebb. 
Um, yeah, there was a study that just came out uh, last month in Medicine and Sports and Exercise that said um, like a gluten-free diet has no effect on performance, um, GI symptoms, a gastrointestinal symptom, and well-being in non-celiac endurance athletes. Yeah. Oh. yeah. It's almost silly that they have to do research like that. I mean, that should be obvious. Yeah. I mean, people have been right. eating bread for centuries. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, Campbell's Soup. Uh, we were talking about soup and the sodium thing, but apparently they are supporting GMO labeling. Uh, they're kind of talking on both sides of their mouth, though, because it says they continue to oppose this patchwork state-by-state state of um, genetically modified organism laws. You know, I do think it's a good idea to put the label on there. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that most of the, the things you see with GMO is not as scary as some people make it out to be. You know, if you look in most scientific circles... Um, there's going to be a lot of agreement that GMO is generally a safe thing, but it says we, um, their, their head man says, I want to stress that we are in no way disputing the science behind GMO, uh, foods or their safety. Uh, I'm sorry, woman, Denise Morrison, Campbell's president and CEO, the overwhelming weight of the scientific evidence indicates that GMOs are safe, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And yet they still are going to support labeling. So and I suppose that's good. Whether you're panicked about it or not, it's nice to know if what you're eating, you know, has been seriously tweaked. Um, and then I mentioned natural. This will be the last thing I touch on. FDA extends comment period on the term natural. And now, this has been a big issue. I know the FDA's launched press releases about this before because just because something is natural doesn't mean it's good. You know, I always joke with students like poison ivy is natural, but would you eat a poison ivy salad? <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> so the FDA has extended the comment period uh, until May of this year. Uh, they're receiving public comments about this. Apparently, they're getting pressure. They got three different citizens' petitions uh, asking them to define the term natural uh, because the FDA doesn't have a longstanding policy for this. They have defined it in the past, though, that was you know nothing artificial or synthetic, including colors and you know additives that wouldn't normally be in the food. Um, but it didn't really address things like uh, pesticides or w different processing methods like irradiation and stuff like that. So they're getting a lot of pressure as, as far as uh, defining natural again. And we all know, right, in the dietary supplement industry, holy God, uh, everything, natural this, natural that. But if it doesn't really necessarily mean better or safer you know, than synthetic, then why are we touting that? You know, like it's some huge feature of the product. So, okay, that's the shotgun news. Let me read. I have two or three things here from listeners, and then uh, we'll go to break. After the break, everybody, we are going to cover uh, explosive lifts, incorporating explosive lifts. We'll look at the rep itself and also some exercise choices. Uh, but on to uh, the mail. Uh, this is from Frank. He says, hello, Frank here. I emailed you with the question on fasting. Uh, thanks for the answer and the advice. Uh, to be specific with the question, I was thinking in theory, could I fast with small amounts of glucose or protein? I know that's not technically fasting for extended amount of time and just burn fat with minimal to no tissue loss, uh, muscle tissue, presumably. Um, why would the body want to burn muscle? My thoughts uh, to illustrate this, uh, if I store up cord wood in, in, in this analogy, body fat for the winter, why would I burn my furniture? or muscle tissue, right? <laughs> anyway, so that's his argument there. You know, the body wouldn't want to prefer to burn uh, muscle tissue. Um, also, I love this show about hormones. One of the points you guys made about adrenaline hormones is that you should move after signaling them. And uh, that's something that Mike Nelson was mentioning. You know, those are fight or flight hormones, and those generally mean physical movement, but we jack adrenaline up in our society with caffeine and stimulants and stuff, and then we sit there, you know, or you sit at your desk. And Anyway, he says, as a firefighter, I was thinking how important that thought was, again, about moving when your adrenaline's high. There are times when we get false alarm and then come back all pumped up with adrenaline and not use it. Even if we don't go out on a call, but the house lights and the alarm come on, um, but it's really for another truck, it's probably not a good idea to just sit here. Uh, so he says, I'm going to start doing some push-ups or other something kind of physical effort, squats, every time that happens. That's not a bad idea. You know, try to use up some of that uh, adrenaline in a sense. So uh, and then yeah, he as says... As long as you don't do that too much, what happens if you get a tall call 10 minutes later and you just did 100 squats? 
That's true. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> yeah, don't exhaust yourself. <laughs> That's a good point. He also says he roasts his own organic coffee. Can he send us some? Yes, sir, you can. I'm, maybe I'll respond to you. I'm always interested in that uh, with an address. So thanks to, for, for that, Frank. Our next one is from Neil. Good morning. Happy New Year to the guys. I'm a big fan uh, of you guys and the show. It's not often that you find experts in the field with practical experience who are okay not knowing an answer. The transparency you guys show on the show is awesome. Uh, I've been an avid listener for a while, and I've got a question about the few weeks immediately following a bulk. This is something uh, you guys would like. Some background. I've got a crazy fast metabolism. Over the past few years, I've tried to gain weight multiple times. Since 2010, I'd gained a total of 18 pounds. Uh, as of December of 2015, at that point, I started a six-week bulk. Uh, as of today, four weeks after my start, I've gained 10 pounds, putting me above 200 uh, body weight for the first time ever. So good on you. Uh, I cut my workouts from three to four times a week to once every three days, focusing on total body big lifts. My calorie intake has been around 4,200 to 4,400 calories. Uh, sound, you know, these sound like on the right track in a lot of ways. But so my question is this, I have worked very hard for years to get myself above 200 pounds. And now that I'm here, I'm terrified. I'm going to lose it as soon as I finish my bulk. Do you guys have any tips or tricks uh, that you've gained through experience that will help me create my new set point for my body? Uh, how should I treat my intake when I finish with this bulk? Uh, thanks a lot for all you guys do and any help you can offer Neil. Don't. Don't stop it. Yeah, don't stop. <laughs> if you um, want to be, be 200, you need to be 220, 215, yeah. you know. If you want that set point to stay at 200, you need to get above that. Yeah, some people under, people don't seem to understand. I mean, and, and it's harder for certain people, and sometimes I think it's harder for individuals that are naturally or genetically, like, say, smaller or only get, you know, somewhere in the 200 or 220-pound range because – it seems like for me, I don't know about you, Phil, but it seems like for me, I mean, I remember like when I was in college, I was like 205. Now like I'm 292. It seems like I've just been putting on lean body mass like every year, you know, for the last like several years. I've been able to maintain like that set point or the set point has actually just gone creeped up higher and higher yeah. um, over time. And I'm able to just kind of cruise there for a while. But I think something that is to helpful to keep in mind when people talk about bulk, I like to know like what type of bulk that you're doing because traditionally people think of like the dirty bulk, right? Where you go hit up Wendy's and McDonald's, you know, two or three times a week and you go to the buffets and that's not really the that's not the best strategy to really use because, you know, physiologically or even speaking of body composition, um, you know, it's 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 insulogenic in a sense, but uh, it doesn't do very, it's not favorable for, for body composition purposes. I mean, you want an ideal situation. I mean, you're looking at, you know, say, a, you know, a 70% lean body mass to, you know, 30% type of body composition. I'm not saying you're going to put on, I don't mean that in the context of you're going to put on 30% body composition, but you have to accept the fact that when you put on weight and lean body mass, there is going to come some, some body composition unless you're just on a ton of drugs and you have, um, you know, like a nutrient, like the things become like a nutrient partitioning agent. So basically, anything that you eat, um, you know, could be you know either burn off a seed or they you know turn into muscle body mass. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so like, what type of bulk are you, are you are you really doing? And I also also like to know when people do this stuff, what's their resistance training program like? You mentioned that he does like three days a week, like total body stuff. But what's the type of volume you know that he's doing? Because more volume, you know, over time. Uh, results and year yields higher caloric expenditure mm -hmm. um, during the workout and, and of course you know over, um, you know over time you can spend more you know more calories so those are the types of questions I like to know and you know what of his 4200 4400 calories you know what's say his percent you know um, you know macronutrient intake and what's his percent protein intake and mm -hmm. um, so I, I think you know you can certainly um, I don't. I don't think anymore that you know people don't need unless you're a really ultra endurance, you know, endurance athlete. You don't need you know sixty percent of your diet from carbs. I mean, you can certainly make 
good progress with, you know, 40, 45% and right, 30% yeah. protein and 30% types of fat. So, you know, I always like to get as much detail um, as you possibly can because it'll, it'll, it'll provide you more specific answers. Yeah, it's always hard to answer listener questions because we're, we're guessing about a lot of things, of course, but uh, well, I, I think carbs I, and Phil, I think that's kind of been something you and I have talked about over the years too, is, mm-hmm. I mean, if your protein's fairly consistent and if if you get your fat in a comfortable range, dietary fat, like you know, what are hundred grams a day, whatever it is, then carbs up and down are what you tweak. And as long as he's monitoring his body weight, you know, or yeah. trying to make sure that he's not putting all of the weight on across his gut, um, it is a good point, though, Phil. I mean, if he want, how big does he want to be? Because yeah. why would you stop your upward well, yeah. tra- tra- trajectory? Unless I know what he's saying, though. I mean, I mean, if it's coming on too fast and it's like literally it's like only 20 or 30 percent lean tissue and he's just putting on tons of fat then it might be time to back off for a month and reassess but yeah the big thing that i've had to get through people's heads though over the years is like man i want to be 200 and lean well okay well we need to go up higher than that you're just not going to magically be 200 and lean Yeah. yeah you're just not without going over that and then come back down you know yeah and if you're at 200 and that's where you want to be and you're not looking the right way well you got two choices you got Okay, stay there for 10 years and work hard and slowly let things change. Or take a faster approach, and that's get to 230, 240, you know, and then come back down. But And the other thing you need to realize is what was your bulk when you started this? Yeah. That might be your maintenance now. You know, that 4,000 calories or whatever might be what you take to maintain where you're at. Because you're a bigger man. No longer, because you're you're 18 pounds bigger now. Yeah, yeah, right on. So you might be eating just enough to sustain yourself. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think it, one important thing is that I don't think science is going to give anybody because there's individual differences, but um, an exact number of when your body weight set point, you know, when something in your hypothalamus or any of these hormonal, you know, neuroendocrine systems kind of reset and say, here's mm-hmm. my new set point. You know, there's a lot to that. Um, usually when we talk about weight loss, a 10% change in your body mass is usually considered that break point where, you know, you start getting pretty dramatic differences in whether it's hormones or metabolic rate or that kind of stuff. If that's true on the weight gain side, because let's face it, there's not as much data really, but um, it's really hard to tell. Like, do you hold, if you do want to plateau for a while and recompose, you know, because we've always sort of asserted that on the show that you could kind of see that anecdotally, but do you do that for six months, a year? It could be it could be several months. It's really hard to pinpoint that, you know what I mean? But it's a good point, Phil, about he's going to have to eat more if he's a bigger man, you know. Yeah. You, generally, what I have clients do if we're going up or down is, like for males, we set up a goal if it's 15, 20 pounds. We get there. And now we stay there for three months at that new weight. And then we reassess, okay, where do we go from here? Do we go up again? Do we go down? You know, but, but it's get where you're going, stay there. Now, 90 days later, what are we working with? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yep. We don't just get there and say, okay, I made it 200. I'm betting tomorrow, you know. Um, yeah. We stay there for a little while. Well, I'll tell you, Neil, um, I, w- I guess my suggestion would be whatever you're considering the bulk aspect that's not normal maintenance, back off on that maybe 25, 30, 50%, whatever it takes, again, on the surplus part. And then you're less likely to start to crash in your body weight, right? Because if you go all the way back to what you were eating when you were a smaller man, oh, yeah, you are going to lose some weight, you know. So whether that's excess carbs, you know, I mean, if you're pounding back five, six, seven hundred grams of carbs a day, maybe pull 50 or 100 grams out. And leave the protein and the healthy fats alone and see what happens, you know, and just monitor yourself. you got to kind of figure out what your maintenance is. So, Okay, I have one last one before we go to break. This is just very quick. It says, hey, guys, love the show. This is from Tim. Last week you talked about investigations into Muscle Pharma, uh, the company, supplement company. Uh, Some of your listeners may benefit from the class action lawsuit with them. Apparently uh, you can – if you fit the right categories, right, as a consumer, uh, up to $300 you could get out of this class action lawsuit. Just wanted to pass along information. Um, it's proteinsettlement.com. So maybe I'll try to put the link, or again, people could Google Muscle Pharma proteinsettlement.com. But apparently there were some issues with some of the claims, 
and he's he's just pointing everybody that might you know if if you're a customer you could qualify it for up to 300 bucks so cool thanks tim all right having said that we're gonna go to break and we come back uh we'll have hopefully 30 minutes or so and we could talk about uh explosive lifts Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry and what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So – uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. <laughs> Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everybody, we are back from break, and we just talked about the big pharma and then listener mail and things like that. We're going to get touch on explosive lifts, what they are, and to use them, and things like that. So um, I'll start it out, I guess. I mean, for me, I kind of have a hierarchy of things and how I do it. And generally, I mean, well, number one, I always try and get people to lift fast, unless we have a specific reason not to. You know, uh, we'll do some, some timed lifts for putting on body mass and things like that. Um, but in general, our regular lifts, it's it's a controlled uh, concentric and explosive eccentric or vice versa. Um, but uh, and then in that too, I mean, I like starting the day with something fast and technical. Then we move on to something heavy and then we move on to the mindless rep work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I'm kind of with Cone on that. Why I don't, he didn't do dynamic work. He just always did dynamic work, and that's it, it. It makes sense. Like when I'm deadlifting 700 pounds, I'm not concentrating on how fast I'm moving the bar. I'm just trying to freaking move fast all the time. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And you know, people always call the Olympic lifts the fast lifts and the power lifts the slow lifts. Well, of course they are. The power lifts are heavier. Force you velocity know? curve. The, yeah, the, the weight. Yeah, that's them. what I was going. I was going to do the, uh, the curve. Yeah, they're they're slow by the very nature of how heavy they are. 
you know, it's you're you're working with a lift like the deadlift where you're literally just standing up with as much as you can compared to let's say a clean and jerk where you're actually throwing a bar up to your shoulders and then you have to throw it over your head. So of course it's going to be lighter unless you're a freak and you're just really strong. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, you'll be able to deadlift more than you can clean and jerk. But yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's what, like my athletes, my average people. I mean, I always think it's good to start with something explosive. It just gets it gets your nervous system fired up. It gets you ready to go. Um, even if it's just deadlifts, like, okay, we're deadlifting today. Okay, well, let's start and let's move the bar very fast. Um, let's set up, you know, and, and pull hard. And then that gets you warmed up for once we get to the heavyweights. Um, yeah, things like that. So, Phil, what do you do with your, your people if they're interested in um, primarily powerlifting? Do you still sprinkle in some of the, the classic Olympic explosive lifts just uh, – or do you just do speed work with oh, the no. usual we'll movements? Like, I mean, how do, you, how do you do that? Like my powerlifting team right now is we – now we're getting in later into a phase. So early in the phase, yeah, we're doing some cleans and, and and maybe a few snatches and clean poles and things like that. It's usually like even my baseball players and football players and stuff, I'm not worried about them being like Olympic technical, mm-hmm. but we'll do power variations and things like that. It's like I don't have time to make this baseball player a – a, a fairly high level Olympic lifter, that'd be a waste of his and my time. Mm-hmm. So I can get the same benefit out of doing clean poles or power cleans and things like that. So yeah, we'll do them. Um, and I, I, I like doing the Olympic lifts for, for power lifters. I mean, especially, you know, pause at the knee, do a hard pull, things like that. It, it gets you warmed up and it just teaches you how to, a lot of the Olympic lifts to put you in a compromised position compared to power lifting. Exactly. As far as lever arms and things like that. So that a good clean pole, you're way out in front of the bar. That's the opposite of a good deadlift, you know, where you're trying to get behind the bar as fast as you can. So we're kind of putting you in a, like a good morning type position with, with the bar in your hands or an RDL. So um, mm-hmm. it's, it's classic moves that you've seen powerlifters use for, for decades. But now we're doing them explosively. So Okay, so yeah, I'll use them. So you will, you'll also do traditional um, like the big three lifts with lighter weight for speed or do you not do so much of that? Oh, like deadlifts, squats, and yeah, things like that. yeah, like yeah. thirty oh, yeah. to fifty we'll percent loads, right? And like I said, I mean, a lot of that though is in the warm-ups. Okay, you're going up to six hundred, right? Right. Okay. We're gonna start with one thirty-five. You're going to move it fast. But I'll have I'll sprinkle in some times where we have days like right now. We're literally doing my whole team is doing all three competition lifts every day they lift. So one day is very squat based. So on that day they have a heavy squat, but on the other days it might be. A speed squat one day and a rep squat another day. Yep. Okay. So, so you're kind of doing a variation of kind of a conjugate method. Yeah, yeah kind of. Yeah. yeah. But with all three lifts every day. Okay. Mm-hmm. So one day it's like we're doing very minimal volume on their squat. Um, five sets of two speed work. Okay. Now it's right into bench. And then from there it's right into deadlift. You know, stuff like that. So, right. And they, the, the load of each lift varies. Like there's one day that's heavy deadlift, one day that's faster deadlift or a power clean or something like that. And then one day we're doing some rep work. Might be stiff-legged deadlifts. Might, a deadlift type move. Might even be good mornings. You mm-hmm. know, whatever. A hip hinge movement. Oh, well, so. listen, dude. I know that you've got to head for the gym here uh, before the end of the show. So I'm going to pick your brain as much as possible. So um, what are your thoughts? I think I know what they are. But what are your thoughts then about instead of like the big three movements or big compound Olympic lifts, um, the traditional lighter accessory stuff that you see powerlifters spending sometimes a fair amount of time on. Do you, do you spend much time with that or not so much? Well, yeah. I mean, we have it's at the end, and it's <laughs> you'd see me write something down like uh, curls, four sets of a lot. <laughs> you know? Okay. So what do you mean a lot? Well, just fucking do some. Just work hard for four sets, you know, type of thing. I very much train that. The accessory work like a bodybuilder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just looking to honestly with the assistance work. You're looking to build tissue. Yep. You know, we yep. don't have to get so anal about it. It's just get in three hard sets or four hard sets or whatever I tell you, and go away. And then, mm-hmm. you know, if it was easy, do more reps. You know, if you hit ten reps and you're like, I got a bunch more. Okay, we'll do twenty five. Whatever. I don't. I don't care. Yeah. Um, just volume. Get in some volume. Yeah, just yep. Some volume of hard reps. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, my attention goes to. There's more programming attention to the main lifts. The other lifts, it's really just assistance in, depending on the person, you know, okay, you're going up, we need more tissue. You're, you know, whatever. We just need, 
more supportive tissue for the lifts. Yeah. That's you know, one thing that people forget. Yeah. Just yesterday in strength conditioning class, I was showing some classic uh, – it was a graph from Digby's sale. And I've met him a few times. He's a really cool guy. But he was one of the first guys to document you know, sort of an uncoupling of uh, hypertrophy gains versus strength gains. You know, you take a beginner and you get much stronger in the first several weeks than – the hypertrophy side might suggest you're like god how are you how are you like 20 percent stronger you're no larger but so it's interesting to see that right because sometimes like there's some guys in the back room where i train they're not very heavily built at all i mean mm-hmm. at all like 165 pound kind of guys and i'm seeing them you know they'll squat 405 and i'm like holy cow you don't have the you don't seem to me to have the legs to be able to move that, you know, yeah. and it's kind of what you're saying. You're so you're doing explosive and, you know, uh, sort of neuromuscular kinds of stuff first. And then you kind of throw in the hypertrophy stuff, because let's face it, it's also good to have some hypertrophy and have a bigger engine, you know, yeah. to ignite. And it depends on the lifter, too. I mean, I have some lifters that can't they just don't they can't handle it. You know, the, the 110 pound girl and she's looking to stay down there. Well, we don't have room in your diet and your training to do a bunch of volume. So we're looking to make you as strong mm-hmm. as possible at your given weight, knowing that you're, we're not going up, right. or whatever. You know. So yeah, that's a fun concept, happens. actually. Phil, that you, it's easy when you got some a, a full grown man or a bigger woman on a bulk. You have a lot more volume to play with. Oh yeah, I can you just know. throw things at you. And, yeah, you know, let's tear it up. But then you got somebody that's going down and things like that, and that's where I never got. Like a disagree with the whole. Okay, it's cutting time. We're gonna up the volume like three hundred percent. Yeah, right. That's do all happened. these reps. And yeah. it's like, what the, why? You know, do yeah. that when you're going up. You know, yeah. you have all this surplus. Tear yourself up. Yeah. And everybody goes like heavy, low rep when they're going up. And it's like, man, I don't, I don't get it. But. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, the whole toning concept, it's, it sort of yeah. falls into that toning idea that, yeah, you, high reps to cut. And it's like, well, all right. But I, you know, I think more and more over the last decade, you've seen people, they, they might do the pre-breakfast cardio or they whatever it is, and they try to keep their weight session actually fairly heavy when they're cutting. Yes. You know, instead exactly. of this ridiculous toning notion. Better with that, but um, yeah, and I mean, I I even like you know sprints and things for my powerlifters. I am not one thing that people notice when they come into my gym, like powerlifters for the first time, is I am not a believer of the huge out of weight, out of shape powerlifter. Um, mm-hmm. It's so we will do sprints and things like that. Of course, when we get closer to competition, well, that's that's got to go down. You know, we're probably in our worst shape when we do the competitions. But um, you know, once that competition's over, okay, let's get you back in some kind of shape. Aside round, I know round's a shape, but it's not a great shape, um, <laughs> right? And then we'll go from there. Right. Yeah. You know, um, a friend of mine and sort of a junior colleague, um, she's been on the show before, MC Powers. Uh, we're going to have on February 20th a uh, workshop here in Northeast Ohio. If anybody's interested, they can email me, but uh, on February 20th. And one of the things uh, she's going to talk about is fit and fat. So by the traditional standards, and again, I think she's talking about a lot of strength athletes maybe, but um, – you can actually rank very highly on several aspects of physical fitness, mm-hmm. and yet your body composition would suggest you're you're over fat, yeah. you know. But and I understand what you're saying too, Phil. You, but you can't let yourself just become, or, or your clients get if sloppy you're, either. If you're winded from going up a flight of stairs, you need to get in better shape. I don't care if you're squatting 900 pounds, you know. You're just you're asking to die. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you have to have some kind of cardiovascular base, base. and you get through the workouts. Even, I mean, you shouldn't like make it through your five sets of three squats and just, I'm done, man. I'm totally cooked. Oh yeah. That last, that that last statement you made right there is (sighs) something that people refuse to really acknowledge. Yeah. It's, I mean, if you look at high level guys, they have brutal workouts that follow the main lift and you need to be able to get through that to, to make that next step. Right. Have the capacity. Yeah. We're starting to get a turnaround. I mean, for a long time it was, especially in powerlifting, it was the big, huge, overweight, out of shape guy that was. But they were stuffing, you know, you take a 400-pound dude and put him in a suit that's made for somebody that weighs 290. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, that yeah. That helps. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you're seeing a, a resurgence. But I think that's the biggest step you see that people have to take to go from good to really good is, oh, okay, I need to work hard. I need to be in shape. And, you know, all the top guys, they're, they're in shape. I mean, like, like JP, for instance, squatting 940 or whatever he did. He blew my doors off at 360 pounds in a sprint. Yeah. You know, he is explosive as hell. I mean, yeah. I hung with him once we got up to speed, but holy crap, off the line, it was like a, a 
three hundred eighty right. pound rock, and he's not spelt. <laughs> you know what I'm. You know no. what I'm saying. So again, like uh, uh, MCs talk about fit and fat. A lot of it has to do with performance. Like you can carry extra body fat, but like you said, if he's a freaking dragster, how can you really point fingers like, oh, he's you know obese or you know whatever. So, so no, cool stuff. Uh, Big John, what are your thoughts yeah. about this? Either exercise choice, how would you incorporate explosive lifts? And you can think about different populations, of course, you know, power lifters, even bodybuilders. Uh, what are your first thoughts on that? Well, I'm kind of with Phil. I mean, I've always um, – I'm, I'm, I'm going to start kind of throwing back in some of the – just the Olympic lifts a little bit just for like, you know, after my dynamic warm-ups and you know, like core activation and, and, and T-spine and hip mobility – and just kind of incorporate the movement pattern back into my training. Even in my, you know, I just be with the bar. I just be with a, you know, a, you know, 95 pounds or, or, you know, a 115 or something before I especially get into the, to the main movements. But, you know, I'm a big fan of the conjugate training system and, you know, the max effort, dynamic effort and rep method. And, and essentially, you know, rep method is just all the assistance work, you know, for reps and volume and dynamic effort is just for speed work. So I rotate out, you know, um, you know, dynamic effort, like lower, you know, upper, and then keep, you know, do all the rep stuff for all the assistant stuff for the upper um, and, and, and lower body days. So, you know, typically I like training four days a week, but with, you know, the school and, and, and work and everything else going on, I usually have to back it back off to three. So my rotation with upper and lower body, you know, max or dynamic effort kind of gets extended out, you know, a little bit. Um, but, uh, I, you know, we talked about the force velocity curve, and typically whenever you look at the curve, it's, you know, absolute strength or max strength at the top, you know, followed by like um, strength um, speed, which is strength in the conditions of speed. So like the Olympic list, you know, for example, you know, then you have power. Um, and one thing about power, and you can argue this, you know, either way, you know, the, the percent power can range from anywhere from, you know, typically 30 to 80 percent. Uh, well, you know, max power production for Olympic lifting is somewhere, you know, 80, 85 percent. Well, for squat jumps, for example, based on the science that I know that I've looked at, especially with my dissertation, you know, squat jumps, for example, can be 40 to 45 percent. But overall, max power production is zero percent. But most people don't train at zero percent. There's always going to be some type of load, you know. So after power, then you have speed strength which is speed and the conditions of strength which would be more indicative of dynamic effort for example if you look at the conjugate system um and then below that is just straight up you know speed like the accelerations you know the sprints those types of things um so one of the things that i've always addressed in my classes and i've done that with this class i'm teaching now this january and even in my biomechanics class i think traditionally a lot of trainers and coaches and you can put, throw in power, you know, powerlifting with this too, and, and a lot of strength and conditioning coaches. A lot of people just focus on, you know, circa max strength or even just absolute strength. But the real key is, and this is probably why I think conjugate is, is more favorable compared to other types of, you know, training systems. That you to be really good, you know, or great, you got to train at all points in, of the curve um, at a given period of time on a, on a regular basis. Um, and and something that I think. Um, Olympic lifters, um, and, and this is not all, but from what I've seen here um, at, at our school, a lot of the Olympic lifters, they, they train at typically 85 to 90 plus percent all the time, um, particularly at higher percent loads. And, and I don't think they do enough of just volume and sub-max work. And I think when you focus on too much absolute strength all the time, the rest of the, your training curve, in a sense, like your ability to be explosive, and to accelerate and, and move things fast and be dynamic goes down over time. Whereas if you if you spend the overwhelming majority of your time, you know, doing um, you know strength speed work, you know, power acceleration, dynamic effort, you know, rep method, your over time your absolute strength will actually go up. Yeah. But but you just can't train one you know or or, or, or one or two methods you know more than the other. You have to train. Uh, throughout all levels of, of the curve to in order to be, you know, really great. And just like, you know, Phil was with the, you know, like a J.P. Price, I mean, and most people don't think of 300-pound, 300-plus-pound guys as being, like, really explosive. But, you know, you look at people like, you know, Brian Shaw, who's 6'8", you know, and over 400 pounds. I mean, he moves very, very well, you know, for, for being that big. I mean, there's mm-hmm. other strongman competitors that will do, like, an hour's worth of conditioning, you know, with battle ropes and tires and sledgehammers and, 
Um, I, I think, you know, it feels right. We've, we've really um, transitioned away from just, you know, the big, you know, sloppy, you know, lifters who, you know, can't really go up a flight of stairs without, you know, taking a five minute break. Uh, and yep. so I know for me personally, like when I put on weight for a contest, I, I have to do more conditioning and more high intensity cardio because one, I'm carrying more weight. So it's going to take more energy for me to carry that weight. Um, and plus, you know, just, just overall keep the body fat. Um, you know, down and be more conditioned, you know, going into the contest. And um, I mean, I still do conditioning and, and high intensity states like cardio on a, on a regular basis now, regardless if I'm even doing a contest. So I think yeah. you really need to train at all points, you know, uh, uh, of the curve. And I think it's a pretty good starting point for people to do um, and just develop different types of motor patterns. Um, because when you, when you focus on too much of one thing, um, you, you don't, there's, there's only adaptation and morphological changes so much over time. And you're not really addressing a lot of weak points, um, and areas that you can focus on for further adding. You know, it's, it's a good point. I, I guess like yesterday I was talking about nerve terminal branching in class. I had some cool histology slides, you know, where the end plate of the nerve sort of, you know, meets the muscle and you can actually, depending on how you lift, you can get different changes. I mean, the neurological changes start in your motor cortex, go down the descending tracks, tracks down your spine, peripheral nervous system, the neuromuscular junction. You can see changes through all this, but like you said, it's really just specificity principle, you know, yeah. even as someone like, I am not that interested. I'm very poor frankly at the olympic lifts i'm not that interested in just performance for its own sake from a bodybuilding perspective you know and i mean i know you love muscle mass like i do um but for someone like myself especially sort of late career you know later in my career and that kind of stuff um I try to focus – I incorporate explosiveness and our listeners out there who are more on the bodybuilder side um, within the actual rep type. You know, rather than change my movements of what I'm doing, I still bench press and I row and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But um, you can do those, like you said, in different points of the power curve. So you can maybe go in one day and it's almost just undulating periodization really up and down. But um, whether I'm squatting or benching or whatever put like a 30% of my one rep max on there, you know, and you can do purposely invoke like a stretch reflex that way, you know, cause you're training a spinal reflex that way that you're not going to be able to do with 90% loads. You know, you right. can, you, you can't just let a 90% of your bench press or squat and just, you know, fall through your chest or drop into the floor. You'll staple yourself into the floor. So you've got to have that, I think, uh, lighter absolute load. So you can, again, like you were saying, maybe it's, it might be 30, 40%. And uh, I can't ballpark every lift like you were saying. They differ, right? At what yeah. percent are you kicking out your highest power output? Um, and I'm actually less interested in that than I am just, like you were saying, uh, specific spinal or neuromuscular adaptations, you know? So for me, it would come down to stuff like touch and go kind of, you know, stretchy lifts as opposed to my usual, frankly, a little bit slower, you know, and focus on the eccentric and all that kind of stuff or, or like pause reps, you know, for just that preload kind of thing. Yeah. Pause reps are just, I mean, they're, I mean, they're used a lot and I, and I've started to, to use them even like, even just like partials or pause reps, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, people don't, people don't think and understand. I mean, you know, when you're doing a normal cadence, uh, you know, of, of a lift and then, I mean, just take something simple, for example, like dumbbell inclines. You know, when you have a two-second pause, you know, at the bottom and try to push up, you know, explosively as you can, even with moderate to heavy weight. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I know I say this in a jokingly manner, but it is true. I mean, it opens up a whole new world of gates. I mean, it really does. Um, and, and it's a lot harder than people think it is. I mean, if you're doing, you know, just you know, say 10 reps on something and you're doing, you know, two second pause, you know, say mid range or at the bottom. I mean, over a course of a set, that's an extra 20 seconds of time under tension. Yep. I mean, you, you add that up over a course of say just three or four or five sets. And now you're way over a minute in terms of time under tension. Well, you know, time under tension is one of three, you know, main mechanisms that facilitate muscle hypertrophy, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Um, along with, you know, metabolic stress and muscle damage. So, um, even and, and, and there's also these different like training techniques, you know, like we talked about the eccentrics, you know, time and time again. We've talked about um, even like isometrics, um, the deceleration, um, even just like aerobic development. But those are a lot more like training methods. Yeah. But like these techniques like, you know, iso holds at the bottom where you could do an iso hole with a, um extended 
you know, eccentric, if you will. Those types of techniques, um, you know, really are, are have favorable outcomes with performance. Um, and people just, it's just the slightest change of something, you know, makes a huge difference in terms of either your ability to perform that lift or just creates a new like a challenge for the musculature right. and adaptation yes for issues, you, know? you know that's it's, maybe that's a benefit and i know you're in the same camp but it's funny you talk about something in class and then i think about it in the gym sort of you know maybe that's it's good that you're a, not just an academic but you're a doer and yeah so you can focus on a different kind of repetition you know so the you know we we're talking in class last, yesterday about actin and myosin you know and how does that work with these pause reps and this or like a preload kind of thing you know you get a little bit of this cross bridge formation start to happen at sort of a sub level and you know then the subsequent force output when you actually go to contract and do the rep is actually higher you know or you're purposely doing that invoking that stretch reflex get those you know that proprioception and those intrafusal fibers you know kicking up the force output of your motor neurons it's so these are like you said there are there are real adaptations and people who are stuck or stale even on the bodybuilding side stuff like pause reps or that prior load or stretch purposeful you know stretch reflex kinds of things you know stretch shorten cycle focus on all of that you can do that with a lot of the traditional lifts You're, you don't have to just go do olympic lifts in order to be explosive you know and it's just a fun way to mix it up i think you know. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I know we talked about like active miles and cross bridge formation. I mean, that's just like, I mean, if you don't know about that stuff, I mean, that was from like the Huxley's and Huxley's developed that back in the you know early mid fifties. Right. Yeah. But, that's old stuff. Um, one one of the things that that and I've talked about this in my Xvis and especially like my advanced Xvis class, um, and it's more towards the eccentric side. But you know, we we're all taught like actin and miles and cross bridge formation is is responsible for force production, of course. And it is, but I think overall um, now the concept, you know, based on science, and of course I've, I've come across it from the eccentric stuff, is that that concept I believe now is incomplete and it's kind of outdated. Meaning, like, in order to, to um, you know, possess more complete depiction of, of the actual cross bridge formation and sarcomeres and contractile unit, you really need to add um, the other contractile protein, Titan. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know because it works together to produce force. Um, in, in addition to, um, you know, explains why muscles are stronger during eccentric contractions, and you know, of course, why eccentrics you know uses less energy and and that stuff. So it's important to kind of talk about that. But yeah, um, well, and there's even the like the elastic component of a lift. You know what yeah. I mean? It's not all actin and myosin. But listeners, if you're not familiar with what we're talking about, sarcomeres, actin, myosin, go do some Google image stuff and pick up on this idea. You know, the underlying, uh, you know, the smallest functional unit, you know, in a muscle and how you can take a biopsy and go down in there and look and kind of get this idea. Why are muscles striated like they are? And so what we're talking about with, with the, some of these um, – more explosive type lifts like pause and explode or a stretch reflex and uh you're purposely trying to in invoke you know some of these things uh stress them in different ways you know or even some of the spinal loops like this the stretch reflex that we're talking about and intrafusal fibers google image searches can bring you some visuals to what we're talking about i think absolutely uh okay cool stuff we are out of time brother so uh there's explosive lifts even for uh, some of the bodybuilder type guys out there bunch of news uh and i guess we will be good uh, until next week all right sounds great all right hey listeners have you seen the store at ironradio.org there are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. 
And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.